you would, open it to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, and we're going to continue the journey we began at the beginning of the summer uh, to walk all the way verse by verse through Ephesians. I want to remind you why we're doing it this way. Remember what we said, that it is God's plan, God's agenda in your life and mine, to grow us, each one of us, to the point where we begin to engage God's word on its terms as opposed to our terms. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when we're young, when we're immature, we tend to think of our situation or our circumstances as the most real thing, and we go to God's word for a commentary on our situation or our circumstances. That's normal. That's what we do when we're young, when we're growing. That's how we live when we're immature. But as we turn into adults, as we mature, as we grow up in our faith, We begin to let God's word speak to us on its terms, which means instead of us saying to God, here's what's most important, we begin to let God say to us, here's what's most important. We begin to allow him to meet us on his terms. And what what that looks like is what we call expository Bible study, going verse by verse through God's word. And and we've been doing that this summer. We find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1 this morning. We're going to work down through the end of the chapter and the little bit of time that we have together. And let me begin by asking you to raise your hand if you've ever experienced deja vu, right? I mean, like almost everybody's hand goes up, right? We've all experienced it. If you don't know what deja vu is, because doctors say that two-thirds to three-quarters of people will experience deja vu several times in their lives, some people even regularly, but about a fourth of people don't experience it. And that was always a shock to me to think that somebody didn't experience deja vu because everybody I knew did. But what deja vu is, is just the sudden feeling that you've been here before. You know, that you did this already. Or sometimes it feels like, well, I must have dreamed this. I I did all this in a dream last night. We all, most of us, uh, have that experience. Here's my question for you this morning. Do you know what it really is? Do you understand what it really is? There's a lot of crazy ideas about what deja vu is. Lots of people experience it, so lots of people have ideas about it. Here's some of them. Some people think that the experience of deja vu is the evidence of reincarnation, that we live multiple lives. What's happening is one of those other lives is bleeding over into the moment. We had a moment just like this in a previous life. Some people actually believe that deja vu is the proof or evidence of reincarnation. Of course, the Bible tells us that all of us only live once. Some people think that deja vu is the proof of, this is kind of a millennial thing, is the proof of multiple universes, right? We live in a multiverse. Marvel movies have taught us that, right? And so things bleed over into each other, and sometimes the other universe pokes into ours. And People actually believe that, that, that deja vu is a glitch in the matrix. Some people think that deja vu is actually a, a manifestation of spirits, like demons or angels or, or some other spiritual being. Some people think uh, that deja vu happens every Super Bowl when this guy keeps returning, right, over and over again. It's like, haven't we already done this before, you know what I mean? Leads to hatred and all kinds of things, right? But the truth about deja vu is actually kind of cool and simple. I remember one night when I worked in the emergency room, it was a graveyard shift, nothing was going on, we were just sitting around talking, and we came to the subject of deja vu, and a couple of the doctors that were there explained it to us. He said, you know, deja vu is actually a neurological phenomenon, it's fairly straightforward. What happens is that all of us, the way our bodies work, is that we take in stimuli all the time, whether it's smell or sight or touch or hearing or whatever, and this stimuli comes into our senses, and our ears and eyes and mouth and skin and stuff turns that into electrical impulses, 
which gets shot into the center of our brain. And there's this place called the cerebral cortex in your brain that then decodes those electrical impulses and says, oh, that's wind on my face, that's an ocean, that's air, that's Pastor Josh, nothing to be concerned about, and so on, right? We decode those impulses. And so that's the way you and I are functioning all the time, is our bodies take the world's stimuli, turn it into electricity, which then our brain decodes into concepts, realities, and so on. And here's what happens, is that every now and then, some of that input will arrive out of sequence. So for example, you have two optic nerves, they go into your brain, they pass in back and they meet, and sometimes the impulse from one eye will hit your brain a nanosecond ahead of the impulse from the other eye. And your brain, which is back there decoding all this, says, oh, oh, that can't happen. And your brain invents a memory. Oh, you dreamed this last night. Oh, this happened before. Oh, you've done this before. And in fact, all it is is a neurological glitch which is pretty interesting because you'd swear you dreamed it the night before. You'd swear you'd been here before. Now, here's what's happening in most of our cerebral cortexes right now is you're all sitting there going, why are you telling me this, Pastor Greg? Well, I came to church this morning and you're just like, well, there's a reason. Once we understand the truth about deja vu, we are set free from all the superstitions about deja vu. And we no longer treat it as something to be afraid of or something that should guide or direct us. And we begin to understand, you know, it's just another part of being human. In the same way, God wants us to understand that connecting with him doesn't depend on a lot of religious formulas. It comes from you personally turning to Jesus as your savior. It comes from you personally receiving him as your savior. And here in Ephesians 3, Paul is going to talk about something called the mystery of Christ. You see it in verse 4. We're going to read it in a moment. And we tend to read phrases like that and think it's something that can't be understood. It's something beyond our understanding when in fact the opposite is the case. The mystery of Christ is something we're meant to understand because it's how Jesus strips superstition from real religion and grows us past our adolescent ideas about how to connect with God. So, so let's work through this passage together a little bit before the picnic and, and break it down, understand it together. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. First, I'm going to go verses 1 to 6, break those down, and we'll move on from there. God's word says this, Ephesians 3, beginning with verse 1. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, he was in prison when he wrote this. And then you'll notice in your Bible that there's a dash. The sentence suddenly ends, and Paul starts to talk about something else. Surely you've heard of the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men, to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and sharers together in the promise that's in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's a, that's a lot. Let's take just a minute to digest it. And there's a few things to take note of. First of all, go back to verse 1 and, and notice how Paul interrupts himself. He starts off to talk about one thing, and then mid-sentence, he changes and begins to focus on something else. We all do that from time to time. Here's the significance of it. 
The reality is that God works through our personalities and our interruptions even more than he works through our fantasy personalities and our so-called perfections. He works through our humanity, not apart from them. He's in the little moments of every day. Or to put it another way, God is most at work, not in our perfections, but in our inspirations. Let me break this down with you for a moment. Most of us default to the assumption that we can most be used by God or are most affected by God when we experience perfections, when we experience somebody who's got it all together, when we get all our ducks in a row and do something right or well or particularly good. But the reality is, is that God is at work in our inspirations more than our perfections. Paul was going one way. Suddenly, in a moment, he interrupts himself and goes another direction, and in that, we are edified. This week, you may have heard a little story that's been in the news about this woman. Her name is Antonia Bundy. She's a 911 dispatch operator from Lafayette, Indiana. And this week, she got a call from a, from a child, an elementary school boy. It was a 911 call. So when the call came in, she did her thing, 911 operator, how can I help you? And the boy said, I'm having a bad day. <laughs> right? And he had a little cry in his voice and... You know, what we would expect to happen in that moment is for the operator to go, is there an emergency? There's no emergency, son. You can't call this line. This is important. We've got to keep this line open for real emergencies. You've got to hang up right now. But Antonia didn't. You can listen to the transcription of her call online, but Antonia just felt a moment of inspiration. And so she began to engage with the boy. She said, honey, what's going on? What's wrong? Let's talk. And Pretty soon, he started sharing about the disappointments of his day, but what it really came down to was he was in the middle of doing his math homework, and he just couldn't get his fractions. <laughs> he just couldn't do them. Turns out and math is a hobby for Antonia, so she could have scolded him or reported him or just hung up. Instead, she spent the next few minutes helping him learn how to do fractions. Would have expected in a moment of perfection. God wants you to understand this about his work in your life. He wants you to allow interruptions, to be willing to experience interruptions. One of the things I learned as a young pastor was that Jesus constantly allowed himself to be interrupted. And I tried to do the same thing. Because I know and understand that God is at work in my inspirations more than he's at work in the perfection that I pursue. Some of us have become so enamored of perfectionism, we've become perfectionists. And as a consequence... God is inhibited in his efforts to work through us and in us. Paul allows himself to be interrupted, and as a consequence, some pretty amazing things are revealed. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, Surely you've heard of the administration of God's grace given to me for you. First of all, understand that that word administration in the Greek has the sense of a trust, has a sense of a thing given to you, like when you're made a legal guardian or when you're made somebody who's a trustee on a will or a trustee in a church. It has the idea of a responsibility that's given to you. Paul sees the grace given to him. Catch this, friends. He sees the grace given to him as a trust for the sake of somebody else. He says, God's grace has been given to me as a trust for you. Take that in for a moment because here's what most of us kind of do default is we believe that God has given us his grace primarily for ourselves. And, and that's true. He has given us his grace for ourselves, but that's the secondary reason for it. The primary reason is for that he's given you his grace is for the sake of somebody else. 
Have you ever considered that for a moment? Have you ever asked yourself, asked God, hey, God, you've given me your grace. Who did you give it to me for? I dare you. I challenge you to do that. The Spirit of God will answer. He will begin immediately to reveal to you who specifically he's given you his grace for on behalf of. And once you begin to understand grace as a trust given to you for the sake of someone else, everything changes. Suddenly, husbands, you realize that the reason God has given you his grace is so that you can do what Paul's going to say in Ephesians 5 specifically to you as a husband, which is to sacrifice yourself for your wife. You are not meant to seek your well-being in her. You're meant to give yourself away for the sake of her. God gave you his grace so you can do that. Ladies, same thing. If you're a wife, God has given you his grace so that you can participate in and submit to your husband's leadership, not his tyranny, but his leadership, to allow him to be the leader in the marriage, even and especially when he's wrong. Somebody say amen, all right? That's what grace does. It allows for that to happen. Paul understood that grace is given to him for the sake of somebody else. Do you? Do I? You know, we kind of naturally grasp this with respect to our kids. We realize that everything we have is, you know, to use for their benefit, to raise them, to help them, to grow them. But we don't connect with the reality that goes much beyond our kids. Paul understood grace to be given to him for somebody else. There's this great scene that kind of captures this at the end of the original Toy Story movie. You remember Toy Story, where we met Buzz and Woody and all those guys? And what's the simple plot of Toy Story is that Buzz, uh, Buzz doesn't think he's a toy. Buzz doesn't think he's, uh, uh, you know, an action figure. Buzz thinks he's a real space ranger, right? And so the whole movie is about Buzz discovering that he's not. And when he does, he just crashes into a defunct mess. He's like, I'm a nothing. I'm just a, a nothing until... He finds that written on the bottom of his shoe is the name of a child, Andy. And suddenly, Buzz realizes, I'm made for Andy. And that is a high and holy calling. And he rediscovers himself. And he realizes at the end, it's actually better to be a toy, an action figure, than a real space ranger. Because he's made for Andy. In the same way, God wants you and I to realize that he's given us his grace. We are born again. We are made new for the sake of others. And I would challenge you to, to ask God in prayer, hey, who, who did you give me your grace for? He will answer. He will answer when you pray that prayer. Paul goes on in verse 3 to talk about the mystery made known to me by revelation. Now, the word mystery in the Greek, musterion, means something with a secret. It doesn't mean something that can't be understood. It means a thing which on the surface is not immediately apparent, but which can be understood once you, you grasp it. So let me give you an illustration of this. The mystery of God, the secret purpose or will. When I, when I went into boot camp in the Marine Corps, they had a whole plan of training I knew nothing about when I went in. I learned about it later. What was the plan? The plan was this. We're going to take each unit of 90 guys, and we're going to continually put them in no-win situations of all kinds. We're going to give them a job to do and not give them enough time to do it. We're going to give them another job to do and not give them the tools to do it. We're going to tell them to do a job, tear down this rifle, put it back together again. We're not going to give them time to do it. And then when they fail, we're going to punish them for it. And we're going to do that over and over and over again. Now, you might say to yourself, what's the point? There's actually a profound point. Because what they're doing is they are teaching, uh, uh, you know, Marines, young soldiers, they're teaching them how to persevere in no-win situations. Because guess what? That's what combat is, a no-win situation. Even when you're winning, you're losing. People are dying. People are getting hurt. And so what they need to do is sort out folks who can't persevere in no-win situations. And a lot of them can't. We lost a third of the guys we started with. 
It wasn't because it was too physically demanding. It was because too mentally and emotionally demanding. And people would drop off to the right or left. But by the end, we had a group of guys that no matter how many times they fail, would just keep trying to do the same thing. So there was a secret will, a purpose in everything that was being done. Paul says God has the same kind of thing. What is that secret will or purpose? We're going to get to that in a moment. But there's an agenda that he's pursuing throughout. In verses 4 and 5, Paul talks about that mystery, and he applies it specifically to Christ because God primarily engages in it through him. What is the mystery of Christ? The truth that made known in him. And before we get to the definition of that, notice what else Paul says about it in verse 4. He says, it was not made known to men in other generations, to people in other generations. In other words, Paul says, I'm, I'm telling you about a purpose and will of God that hasn't always been apparent, but has now been made apparent. He said in previous generations, this wasn't fully revealed, but it has now. So let me take just a second to teach you as my fellow believers, a very important principle you want to understand as you seek to engage God's word in your own life. And and the principle is simply this. It's something called progressive revelation. Now, you don't have to get hung up on the phrase. It's a Bible college phrase. It's a thing you learn. It's it's a handle to grab onto a reality. Kind of like you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but it's explicit throughout. Progressive revelation means that God has progressively, over time, revealed more and more of who he is and how he works in the world. That he began with Abraham and only revealed a few things. He finishes in Christ, which is a full and complete revelation. Here's why that's significant and important. Lots of people go back and read the story in the early parts, forget that it is a whole, get hung up on what God did or didn't know in the early part, lose the context of it, and as a consequence become confused about their Bibles. If I can make a metaphor for you, when you had kids and uh, your kids were very young, you parented them one way. As they grew, your parenting method evolved. Let, let me illustrate. When, when your son was one and he was at the kitchen table with his Cheerios and he had a fit and flung the Cheerios across the room, you were like, no, that's wrong, that's bad. But, and, and you would respond to him in a certain way, discipline him in a certain way. But inside of your head and heart was this understanding, hey, one-year-olds do stuff like that. And so your parenting was moderated by the fact that they were one. Now, when your six-year-old throws her bowl of Cheerios all the way across the kitchen, you had a different response. At that point, you say, hey, whoa, we know better than this. And maybe there was a spanking or timeout or whatever. There was a little more that went on. When your 12-year-old threw the bowl of Cheerios across the kitchen, you said, adolescence has arrived, right? And you responded to that in a very different way, right? Because there's a part of you going, hey, 12-year-olds, no, 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 no. This, we're way past that. You follow me? When your 18-year-old threw the Cheerios across the room, right? Then that's when you call the guys in the white jackets to come and take them to the house. No, you, it's a whole different thing. And if your 40-year-old is throwing Cheerios, well, that's just what husbands do, you know, after a while. But you see my point. No, I'm being silly, but I want to be, I want, grasp this, friends. So God comes to Abraham, and God doesn't give Abraham a whole moral code. He doesn't talk about the sanctity of marriage in the covenant and only one wife, and he doesn't talk about a lot, slavery, so on. He didn't talk about that because he hasn't got there yet. What he says to Abraham is there's one God, one, one real one. And he says, Abraham, I want you to trust what I say. I want you to believe what I tell you more than anything you think or feel or see or hear. And that's all. And then as he moves along, he starts, he creates Israel. Now we're going to talk about social justice. Now we're going to talk about personal morals and ethics. Now we're going to bring in a lot more. But why? Because we're, the story is moving along and it's growing. Then we're going to get to the prophets. And what are the prophets going to talk about? What's going on in your heart? This isn't just about doing the right thing like a robot because somebody's watching. Now let's talk about your relationship with God. Now let's talk about your relationship with your fellow human being. And suddenly the revelation is growing. Now we're not talking about what you should and didn't do, but what you... uh, 
want or don't want to do. And now we're working in there. And then finally, we, we climax with Jesus. When Christ comes, God has fully revealed himself because he's come as a human being. Well, that simple understanding informs the way that we read and study our Bibles. It's what Paul's talking about in this moment. So when we look back at what God was teaching the four-year-old, we shouldn't as 24-year-olds go, well, this is dumb. No, it's, we're working through the process. We're laying a foundation for what's to come later. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 captures this perfectly when the Bible says this to you and me. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, comma. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain that the son is superior to every angelic manifestation, every miracle, every law, everything else. In Jesus, the, the uh, revelation is complete. It doesn't mean the revelation before wasn't true. It means it is fully true in Christ. And that's important because our culture will pick some verse in Leviticus 8 or something and then have a cow because we don't sacrifice goats in their mother's milk. They're like completely missing the point, okay? The reality is this progressive revelation. Paul talks about it here. And then in verse 6, he uses a word that is filled with meaning. He talks about the promise in Christ Jesus. Promise is a big deal word for Paul. A really big deal. Let me explain it to you, and we're, we're running out of time, but let me explain this to you. Most of us assume that a relationship to God is like a contract or a business deal. God has his part of the deal. We have our part of the deal. We keep our part. He keeps his part. We break our part. He breaks his part. Most people assume that that is how a connection with God happens, and that is what a connection with God depends on. Now, the gospel comes and says something very different. The gospel says, if you will believe in Jesus and receive him as your savior, then God keeps the contract entirely on his side. In other words, the gospel isn't a contract, it's a promise. And Paul is actually going to say it's always been this way. Because if you go all the way back to Genesis 15, the beginning of that progressive revelation... We find God coming to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. And then he does something dramatic that, that uh, most folks don't understand, at least early on until they begin to learn their Bible. God says to Abraham, here, I want you to get a couple of animals, sacrificial animals, cows, sheep, so on. I want you to cut them in half. I want you to arrange them on the ground, and I want you to sit down next to them. <laughs> We're going, what? But there's actually a very everyday reality behind this. See, in those days, when a contract was made, a business deal or a serious engagement of some kind, um, what they would do is they would go to the city gates, they would take these animals, cut them in half, a couple of them, don't get weird afterwards, they would have a barbecue, they would go celebrate the contract that was just made, so it's not like some weird thing, it's just getting ready for the meal. But they would symbolically use the meat, they would lay it out, and the two people who were agreeing to the contract would stand next to each other and walk between the divided halves of the animals. They would do this in public in the city gate where everybody could see it. Why? Because what they were saying is publicly to everybody, you be the witnesses, we've made a deal. And if either one of us breaks this deal, if either one of us cheats, isn't honest, doesn't keep to the terms of the deal, right? Then may it be done to us as was done to these animals. May we be punished. May we lose our life, depending on the seriousness of the contract. And so the two would now... That, so when God says to Abraham, hey, I want you to get the animals together, Abraham would go, oh, yeah, right, you're making a contract with me. But when the moment to, uh, to bring the contract to fruition came, God said to Abraham, no, I want you to just sit there, 
and he put him into a, a sleep. And then God by himself passed between the pieces of meat. What was God saying? I know you can't keep this contract even if you say you're going to. It, it can't depend in any way on you. So Abraham, I want you to know though that I'm binding myself to this promise I'm making to you. I am binding myself this, this covenant to you even if you don't bind yourself to me. I am for you. I love you. I want to save you. I want to make you mine. And all of that is on me. All you have to do is believe it and receive it. It's that reality that Paul is referring here when he talks to the promise that is in Christ Jesus. And church, that shift needs to happen in your head and heart if you're going to mature in Christ. You've got to understand that God has made a contract for you. He has made a promise to you. And it's your belief in that promise that connects you to him, not hoops you jump through, not holding up your end of the bargain. In the August 7th, 2000 uh, ABC News special report, the story was told of a guy by the name of Henry Anhalt. Henry had never flown an airplane in his life. He'd flown in airplanes, commercial liners, kind of like you and me. But uh, while he was riding back from missions work in the Caribbean in a private plane, a small uh, Piper Cherokee Cub with his wife and three small children, the pilot, a missionary pilot, collapsed and suddenly died of a heart attack while they were in midair. Henry, in a panic, climbed into the front seat, managed to figure out how to work the radio. He didn't know what channels to go to. He didn't know what procedures, but he managed to get the radio functioning and he threw out panicked calls for help. It just so happens as Providence would have it that a flight instructor by the name of Dan McCullough was on that particular channel working with a, a, a student in another airplane. He heard this panicked cry for help and he responded to it. And he said, Mr. Annault, after they exchanged names, he said, hey, I want you to calm down. I just want you to relax. He says, what I want you to do is just trust me. Just trust me enough to do what I'm going to tell you to do, and you'll be fine. I can get you down. I can land you even from here. But what you've got to do is listen to me and trust me. Now, it was made particularly difficult because this particular aircraft was something called a Piper Cherokee 6 that, in fact, requires advanced training to fly. You can't get certified on it unless you're a very experienced pilot because it's high performance, very touchy. But Dan said that Henry listened and did everything he told him for the next 30 minutes. And as a consequence, he safely landed the plane so well that when Dan came down behind him, he walked up and offered to sign off on his pilot's license on the spot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Dude, that was awesome. And the reporter afterwards, when he was interviewing the instructor, Dan, he said, man, how did you do it? And Dan said, it wasn't me. He said, he believed in me enough to do exactly what I said. And that's all it took. Well, the mystery of Christ is that when we believe in him enough to do what he says, that's all it takes. That's all it takes. And doing what he says really depends on believing in him. Do you believe in him enough to listen to him and to do what he says? That's what God asked of Abraham. That's all God asked of Abraham. That's all he asks of you and I as well. Sometimes faith feels like a big mystery. Jesus makes it simple. <laughs> listen to him like you believe in him. And if you do, your life starts changing. Before you know it, you're flying. Well, let's just get through verse 13 because we only got a little time left. Paul goes on to say something and, and bring this full circle. And that's where we'll close this morning. He says, verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 3, I became a servant of this, this gospel, this gospel of promise. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, 
Once again, a gift, a trust given to me for the sake of others through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, doesn't defend on my perfections, but my inspirations, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles. Grace was given to me for somebody else. The unsearchable riches of Christ and to make known the administration, the trust of this mystery, this secret purpose, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things, but has been revealed now. Okay, here's the last thing I want you to hear this morning, church. Listen to what Paul says. He says his intent, God's purpose, God's plan, God's intent. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold, many-faceted wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So I ask you, therefore, not to become discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. He's in prison when he writes this. We noted that earlier. First of all, once again, he says, this grace was given to me as a trust. But then in verse 10, he zeroes in on the fact that God's desire, hear me, church, because we're almost done. God's desire is to work in the world through his church. I wonder if you understand that. He works in the world through his church. Lots of people think that church is optional in Christian faith. It is not. Perhaps the greatest mistake you can make if you want to follow Jesus is to think of church as optional. God's work in the world is centered in church. We mustn't think that God's work in the world has primarily to do with governments and cultures and headlines. It does not. It has primarily to do with what is happening inside of each one of us, inside of you, inside of me, inside of those young men that lost their minds and perpetrated murder yesterday, inside of those who choose to serve like the missionary family we just read about, Inside of us, what happens inside of us is where God is at work. It has to do with the heart. It has to do with what's going on inside of us, and he does that work through his church. You know, maybe the most profound cartoon that I've ever seen in my life um, hangs in my office. It's in a little frame. I've had it there for like 35 years. It's all yellowed. (laughs) You can tell it's old. But this simple little cartoon, the first time I saw it, just blew my mind, and I've kept it ever since as a reminder. It just appeared in a weekday edition of a newspaper, and what it showed was Moses coming down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. And if you know the story, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he came down the mountain, and he found Israel partying and worshiping false gods at the bottom of the mountain, right in the moment when they were supposed to be waiting to experience God's fathering of them. Instead, they were carrying on treating Mount Sinai like Las Vegas. And Moses is coming down the mountain and he sees this and there's shock on his face. And if you know the story, he threw the tablets down in dismay and God had to redo it. But in the cartoon, he's got that look on his face and the partying crowd looks up at him and one woman's holding up a drink and she says, hey, it's the economy, stupid. That is exactly how many people in our world are living. As if God's work is not primarily through the church and in the hearts of men and women. They're acting as if it is somewhere else, and it is not. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 16. He said, what good will it be for a person if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Yeah, because God's work is through the church 
in the hearts and minds of people. What is most significant from heaven's perspective is not what you're going to read in the news today. It's what you're going to do and say in your relationships with other people who are eternal when everything else isn't. And Paul wants us to grasp this. He wants us to understand that this work, this work on the inside of men, in the hearts of men and women, is centered in the church. In my small group, a friend of mine shared a story with me a few weeks ago that just I'm never going to forget. He talked about his church. The small group that I'm in has guys from all different churches. And, and uh, in his church, they have a tradition. And the tradition is similar to what many churches have, including us, which is that in the spring, when graduation comes around, they celebrate their high school seniors who are graduating from high school. Lots of churches do that. We do that. His church has a unique way of doing that. And when he shared this story, he was half laughing, and he also had tears in his eyes. He said, what they do at our church is we bring those seniors up, there's a few of them. They're graduating. He says they come up on the platform in front of everybody, and then the ladies' quilting club comes in from the foyer. And what they've been doing, as it turns out, all winter is making a quilt for each of these kids. And so the, the ladies' quilting club, mostly elderly ladies, come up and they stand behind each of the high school seniors and they wrap them in a quilt and offer the ladies' quilting club prayer. You just know these seniors have been looking forward to this all year, right? right? And they just can't wait for this moment, right? And he says it's nerdy and awkward and people laugh about it and the kids complain about it. And he said, I think I cry every single time. He says, because I know that they don't yet appreciate those quilts. But as they get older and wiser and grow, that moment is going to grow in their hearts and in their minds. And he says, I know a lot of those quilts are going to end up in an attic and forgotten, but the moment won't be. He says, again and again and again, I know throughout their lives, the Holy Spirit is going to speak to them about that moment. And he says, I've come to believe that that moment is one of the most powerful moments in our church. Well, that's not true if the headlines are what matters <laughs> because it's not making headlines. But it is profoundly true if what happens is what goes on inside of us through the church. Yeah, may, may we be that. When we go out to the picnic today, may kids never forget the picnic. When the people of God gathered to fellowship in love and grace and joy, Wow, I get to find a church, the people of God who do stuff like that. Yes, because it's the most important thing in the world. Now, here's where it ends. In verse 12 of chapter 3, Paul talks about how God's purpose in working through the church is to bring us to the point where we approach God with freedom and confidence. What does that mean? What does that look like? to approach God with freedom. If I were to sit at your kitchen table and we were to talk and I were to ask you if you feel like you approach God with freedom and confidence, probably a lot of us would say, well, not really. I have anxiety. I have fear. I feel like a failure. John Maxwell <laughs> shares a great story about two cows grazing in a pasture when a milk truck drives past the farm that they're part of. Painted on the side of the milk truck are the words, Pasteurized, homogenized, refrigerated, and vitamin A added. The one cow turns to the other and says, sort of makes you feel inadequate, doesn't it? <laughs> That's how a lot of us feel about approaching God. Inadequate. But what he wants us to feel instead is freedom and confidence. 
The whole point of the gospel and God's working through the church is to bring you and me to the place where we approach him with freedom and confidence. Let let me paint a picture of this for you because we're almost done. You know, in in our church office over here, uh, there's kind of an understanding that on Tuesday is sermon day. Tuesday is Pastor Greg's sermon day. So the rest of the week, my, my door is generally open. I encourage people, come on in, don't hesitate. Let's you know, do blah, blah, blah. Show me your dumb videos. Talk about real stuff, right? So the door's open. But on Tuesday, it's not. Because on Tuesday is when I need to go in there and close the door. And because I'm your pastor, I need to get alone with God. I need to pray. I need to study. I need to listen to him and find out what he wants me to say on Sunday. So Tuesday's sacred in that way. And, and our secretary, Diane, she's wonderful about it. She's like a mama bear. Anybody goes near my door on Tuesday, she's like, she has weapons in her desk. <laughs> she doesn't, I'm kidding. But she, she, she says, not today, sorry, not today. You know, if you're bleeding out, the question is, well, do you think you're dire? Can you make it till tomorrow? Because Tuesday's kind of sacred, I'm kidding, but you get the point. And so there's this understanding, but there's an exception to this understanding. You see, my son, who knows about Tuesdays, nevertheless, will come to the office on a Tuesday and he'll walk through the door and act like nobody can stop him. And he'll go to my door and just open it. Sometimes it's like, hey, stop, it's Tuesday. No, you can't. Or Pastor Allison, who's next door, will say, hey, Isaiah, he's studying. I know. (laughs) And then he goes right through the door and he closes it and he sits down on the couch right next to me like he owns the place. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Because I want him to feel that. Because he is special. He's my son. He is special. And church, that's what God wants to cultivate in you. The freedom and the confidence to approach him because you're his. To approach him because you're his. And he does that through his church. He does that through the ministry. He does it through moments just like this. That's the plan. That's the agenda. And as that happens in our lives, yeah, God happens in our lives. So so let me finish this morning by asking you, do you have that kind of freedom and confidence in approaching God? He wants you to. It happens as you learn his gospel. It happens as you understand that it's a gospel of promise, not a contract. It happens as you put your faith in what he says more than your failures. It happens like that. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning and give yourself and the people around you just a little sacred space. And let me just ask you as your fellow human being, as your fellow Christian, do you approach God with freedom and confidence? Do you, as the Bible says, approach the throne of grace boldly? He wants you to. He wants you to walk into him just like my goofy son walks into me. Because you're his. Because he's made a promise and bound himself to you. And all he asks is that you believe. Father, this morning I know that you are speaking to many of us in this moment. Help us to hear you. God, there are those in this room walking in sin that is eroding their souls. You seek to save them, to rescue them, to make them your sons and daughters. 
It happens as they draw near to you, as they turn to you. God, others of us have gotten so confused about your gospel that we've begun believing that we have to hold up our end of the bargain or there's no deal. But you tell us that the gospel is a promise and it is our faith in that promise that saves us, that teaches us how to fly and how to land. God, help us to hear your spirit speaking to us in this moment. If you're here and you've never received Jesus as your savior, you've never said to God, I need a savior, Jesus, be my Savior. You can do it right now. He's here for you. He hears your heart. Just tell him. If you're here, even you stopped coming to him with freedom and confidence, he invites you to do that right now. Unburden your heart. He's your dad. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. God, send us out into this picnic knowing that you delight in our fellowship. And pour your spirit out on water balloons and slides and all the rest. That we might know that you are among us. And we pray that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? Yeah.